And welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. I'm your host, Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, I'm talking with Dr. John Norsini. John was awarded the prize in 2014 for his important contributions to research in medical education, especially his pioneering research on knowledge decay, speciality certification, and the development of new methods of assessment. Dr. Norsini spent 25 years with the American Board of Internal Medicine, serving as Director of Psychometrics, Executive Vice President for Evaluation and Research, and Executive Vice President of the Institute for Clinical Evaluation. From 2002 until 2019, he was President and CEO of FAMA, the Foundation for Advancement of International Medical Education and Research, where he established numerous worldwide initiatives and programmes in medical education, research and data resource development. In our earlier interview, I asked him where it all began and what made him go down the path of medical education research. So the story is that I was in a graduate program for uh, child development and counseling, and that ultimately is what my PhD is in. Um, And I ran out of money, uh, and I needed to take a job. And one of the things I could do is uh, do statistical work and program the computer. And there's a place called the American Board of Internal Medicine who needed somebody to do that. And so I did it and finished my PhD there kindly actually ended up funding the rest of my PhD uh, as part of my employment there. And then after that, I just liked the work and stayed. What did you like about the work? So it was it was interesting in that I got to deal with adults in terms of the, de- the developmental piece of my uh, education uh, and looking at the development of physicians over time from folks who first enter medical school until they're done their postgraduate training. So that was one thing. The other thing is that the board focuses on assessment, and assessment is one of the things I really always loved. So it gave me an opportunity to do that in a, in a really wonderful way. Having spoken to some of your peers, I understand there was less acceptance of new ideas in the 1980s. Early in your career, was there any pushback to some of your research ideas and suggestions? Yeah, I think I think what was welcomed in the environment where I worked, the board, was research. And so anything that we could do to answer questions that the board had were, was viewed positively. So um, there was a time when the board members actually did all the work as opposed to govern the organization. And through my tenure there, there was a transition from, from that doing the work to, to governance. And on the way, they wanted answers to questions. And so they would ask questions about what uh, needed to be done from an assessment perspective. And I had the opportunity to answer them, which is really wonderful. They very much valued research. When did you start to realize that your ideas and research were gaining traction? Was there a pivotal point for you? Well, at at the board, at the board, it was it was almost continuous because they would ask a question like, how many questions should we have on the examination, Norsini? And I would try to answer it. And so uh, I had that kind of success relatively early in my career. So I was really, I was really fortunate to be in the place where I was. 
I wanted to delve a bit deeper into your areas of research and in a recent paper you wrote about relationship between assessments used in medical education and the outcomes of clinical care. Can you tell us more about that? That's my current passion. I think that's a that's it's an absolutely critical area for assessment. Uh, in order for what we do, our work, one to be accepted as credible, it has to have a, a, f- a relationship with future quality of care. And two, if it does, that gives our work an inc- incredible meaning and it gives us the ability to influence quality of care in important ways. So I think what that work has done is is actually taken some of the research in health services research and taken that health services research and applied it to assessment. So we've begun to look at the relationship between performance on licensing and certifying exams with later performance in practice. And it turns out that folks who are board certified in the U.S. provide better care than those who do not. Uh, And in fact, there's a a difference in relative risk of 20 or 25 percent in myocardial infarction and and congestive heart failure for those who are board certified as opposed to those who aren't. So, So I think it's a really important direction for our work. It's just the beginning, but I think it's an important thrust going forward. So how do these assessments support and create learning? One of the challenges that we've always had is that it's hard to compare learning or methods of learning or strategies for learning or curricula with patient outcomes because they're so far separated. And what will happen is if we can get the assessments done properly, they'll act as a kind of intermediate predictor of future quality of care, and it'll allow us to do a lot more research of the kind that we need to do in order to establish that our curricular interventions are actually having the, the desired effect down the road. One of the things which keeps coming up in this podcast series is communication skills, which is my background, but more specifically, how you assess this. Is this something which you've looked at in your research? So I think that's the use of standardized patients are an absolutely wonderful device for looking at communication skills early on in training uh, and through most of medical school. And so I have looked at that. Later on, there are things like peer assessments and 360-degree assessment that I've looked at throughout my career. And both of those, I think, are ways to begin to get a communication skills. I think it's an extraordinarily difficult area to do work in. Uh, so congratulations for having having spent your time there. So it's a real challenge, but I think we've made a little bit of progress uh, against that challenge. And I think it's a really obviously an absolutely crucial competence. A lot of your research has also focused on the characteristics of medical education and how that produces the best doctors. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So we did some work while I was at the Board of Internal Medicine where we took our examination performances as an outcome and looked at the characteristics of training and how it related to those outcomes. So, for example, we looked at faculty to resident ratios postgraduate trainee ratios. And the better those ratios were, the better folks performed on the examination. We looked at the number of teaching beds in particular training programs and how they compared. So they're the kinds of studies we looked at in terms of trying to predict performance on our examinations based on the characteristics of education. And we found a number of relationships around around that. The second piece of work then took those that examination and looked at it against practice, as we just talked about a minute ago. And so based on that, you can have some confidence 
that those intermediate measures provide you a rough estimate of how someone will perform in practice. So it provides a chain and makes research much more possible than it would otherwise be because you'd have to wait for 20 years for somebody to get out into practice. Another area of your research has been around what constitutes best practice in certain situations. So what is the best practice, say, for assessments based on simulation? Based on simulation. uh, So I think that there are two or three things that matter quite a bit. The first thing is the number of encounters to which you can expose someone. So I think that's a really critical feature and, and one of the early things that we all learned in the field. Uh, second thing is that the number there have to be a significant number of evaluators involved. So having one or two folks is not enough. It's important to have several several folks doing evaluation. I think the third thing I learned, uh, and I, I learned it from other people, is that high fidelity simulation is lovely, but it may not be necessary in all instances. That in fact, lots of good work can be done with with lower fidelity simulation. And that makes it more practical and more doable from day to day. And staying with that idea, what's the best practice for setting standards? In terms of setting standards, again, it's it's the same sort of situation. Lots of times folks focus on the method they use to set standards. And I don't think the method is near as important as who's sitting in the room setting the standards. So making sure that there's a sufficient number of the right kind of people sitting in a room when they do that as well as uh, transparency in the process, making sure that everyone understands who was engaged and what they did as part of their engagement in the process. So I think credibility really relates to who sets the standards and the use of a systematic method, not so much exactly what method was used. You spoke about credibility there. Do you think this is something that people often miss and this assumption of trust can potentially be damaging? Absolutely. I think that's, a, that's an absolutely critical piece of this. And making sure you have the right people sitting in the room when you do that is probably, as I said, the most important thing. So if you have someone in the room who has a conflict of interest, for example, it takes down the entire process. It loses its credibility. So making sure the right people are in the room is really critical. If you're setting a, a standard for an examination that's going to be used for licensure or certification, it's really important to have practitioners in the room as well as academics. So I think I think who sits in the room is really the, the crucial piece of this, almost more important than exact, and much more important than the exact method you use to set standards. Looking at the results from all your research, did you get the expected outcomes or were there some surprises along the way? So there were always surprises along the way. It wouldn't be fun if there weren't surprises along the way. I think that the surprises for me initially were when we were doing some work around, for example, in an oral exam setting or a workplace-based setting, the relationships between the rating forms that somebody filled out as opposed to the number of faculty members, as opposed to the number of encounters that were observed. Uh, and in those days, I actually thought that the rating form was probably the most important aspect of the results. And in fact, it ends up being the least important aspect. It's much more important to have more faculty members involved. It's much more important to see a trainee with more patients, with different patients. So I think uh, I think all of that was kind of surprising to me in the day. If you think about your research as a whole, is there an idea or concept which is perhaps unique to you? I know there's a lot of crossover and borrowing of ideas, but is there something which you think is uniquely yours? 
it, there are no unique ideas. <laughs> I think I think everybody is influenced by everybody else. Uh, and if you're not, then you're not doing your job. So I don't think that there's anything unique that I've ever done. I've had wonderful collaborators along the way. And it really, my research is the product of the communities where I've worked. It's not necessarily so much a product of me. I've just been lucky in terms of where I've been and the people I've been around. A couple of you have said you've been lucky, and I'm interested in that perspective. Perhaps it is luck, but perhaps it's also about taking opportunities and surrounding yourself with the right people. So I think it's probably a combination. I mean, it was serendipitous that I ended up at the American Board of Internal Medicine. As I mentioned, I ran out of money and it was a job. I needed a job and it was the best job I could find. So, you know, that's serendipity. But when I got there, there were wonderful people there, wonderful people who who wanted to collaborate. There was a board that valued research and really very much wanted wanted those sorts of contributions to be made by staff. Um, and I've had wonderful mentors along the way. So, it, you know, it's 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 a combination of it's a combination of the two serendipity and really, really spectacular folks I've had the, the opportunity to be associated with. A lot of the prize winners and fellows have spoken about the importance of mentorship. What was it that your mentors gave to you, which you're now passing on to the next generation? Well, I think part of it is a love of research and a grounding of opinion and ideas in the findings that you findings from research. So I think a, a large part of what they gave me is a love for research, and it's important in answering questions, even everyday practical questions. So I've tried to pass that along to folks as well. Uh, they provided, I think, excellent guidance and support, and that's really important to me to be able to. To, to the degree that I have mentored folks to provide them the kind of support they need in their careers and in their personal lives. So I think both of those things are really critical. Let's talk about the Karolinska Prize for a moment. Can you tell us about the research you were doing which led to you winning? So I, I think that, that there are three or four areas where I focused Early on in my career, as I just described when I was at the Board of Internal Medicine, I was answering questions about what kinds of item formats were needed, how can we do simulation, how many items do you need, how many examiners do you need if you're doing an oral exam. So all those kinds of questions came up, and that's what my research focused on. So I was focused on answering those questions in a way that would also contribute to the literature. A little bit later on, I got to move into areas like workplace-based assessment, and to begin to look at some of the uh, relationships between performance in training and later performance in practice. And that's been wonderful as well. What impacts, if any, did the prize have on your career? Well, it, it's been certainly it's an incredible honor to win the prize. And that goes without saying. And I'm not too keen on talking about myself, but I would rather talk about what happened to the prize money. So I had the opportunity with that money to establish a fellowship, if you will, or to pay the tuition of, to, to establish a scholarship for faculty, mostly from low-income countries. So I think the biggest impact of the prize won't be known for a period of time yet because it's funded those scholars to, to hopefully make real contributions and make real contributions in low-income sorts of environments. 
This sense of philanthropy is something which has been frequently spoken about in this podcast series and, of course, something which was very close to Gunnar and Anastina's hearts. It seems, though, that philanthropy is much more evident in other scientific fields compared to medical education research. Is this something which you hope to improve? Absolutely. There is, I think, in general terms, not a lot of money for research or for scholar development, if you will, in the field of medical education. It's relatively new. Uh, it, it really is probably no more than 40, 50 years old. But there really is not a lot of funding for that. And so, yes, it's very important to me to do that. And the prize really, more than anything, gave me the opportunity to, to offer that to other people and hopefully impact the field more broadly than I could. What are your thoughts on the fellowship initiative? I think that's a wonderful development. I think it's a nice way to take the prize and to spread it more broadly to create what I think is really critical, which is a community of scholars, an international community of scholars. So I think the the, the idea of the of the fellowship really extends that idea and creates that kind of community, which I think is critical to moving the field forward. And finally, we spoke about mentorship earlier. If you were speaking to yourself as a younger man early in your career, what would be your advice? I don't have a lot of wise advice of this kind. I mean, what, what I would say is find something that you, that you enjoy in life, uh, something you have a passion for, have fun with it, and, and make sure that you don't do it so much that you lose the personal side of your life, because that's probably more important at the end of the day. Dr. John Norsini. That's all for this episode. Next time, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jeff Norman, Professor of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at McMaster University and winner of the prize in 2008. I hope you can join me then.